Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Medicine, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am your host, Jeremy Kaur. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Joseph Jarvis. He is here today to talk about his new book, The Purple World, Healing the Harm in American Healthcare. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and eventually went to school, uh, university in Utah, where I stayed for my medical training and my residency uh, in family practice, and followed that up with a master's degree in public health, and a career mostly in public health, including on the federal and also in uh, some state government positions. For the last 25 some odd years, I've been a consultant in public health and environmental health issues with clients from Guam to New York City. So what inspired you to write The Purple World? I have been concerned about our failing healthcare system in the United States since early in my medical career. Uh, As a family doctor, for instance, I had almost nobody in my practice in Salt Lake City who had health insurance. And I had difficulty helping them with even simple problems like purchasing an antibiotic prescription for an earache. It began to give me pause. Uh, I had grown up in uh, more or less an upper middle class environment, believing that the United States healthcare system was best. And gradually my uh, experience in healthcare delivery taught me that that in fact couldn't be the case. And then I became the state health officer, the lead public health official for the state of Nevada. And I had a variety of experiences, many of which are described in this book, that led me to clearly conclude that we were on the wrong track in the United States. So I began searching for alternative ideas about how we could reframe how we deliver health care. I stumbled on what I thought was a a pretty good idea, and I've developed it and worked with it and worked with people within that movement, which I'll generally call the single-payer movement, uh, for now almost three decades. I had tried almost every way I can think of to affect the way people come to this discussion in the United States. I, I ran for the state legislature in Utah twice. I started a nonprofit organization about health policy. I gave public addresses and and joined public debates and wrote op-ed pieces and went door to door. I did everything I could think of and didn't seem to, I didn't feel like I was making much headway. So I thought, well, I will write a book about some of these experiences about how I, as a a conservative registered Republican, came to the conclusion that single payer was the right thing, the right way to go about this and see if that doesn't resonate with more people. That's, that's the genesis of why, why I write this book. In, in the book, you said you grew up in the so-called golden age of medicine. Uh, can you talk a bit about that and how, how it is different from today? The golden age of medicine has actually two meanings, and I explore both of those in the book. In one meaning, the original meaning for the term, it, it is the era when we went from, we as a Western civilization, went from an old-fashioned, useless uh, leeches and, and bloodletting uh, kind of medicine to one that was based in clinical science that actually had a greater, than, uh, greater chance to help than to hurt the patient. Uh, that golden era began, say, about the end of the 
18th century and and clearly flourished through the 19th century and then exploded in the early 20th century, ending around the time I was born in the middle of the 20th century. Um, the other meaning of the term golden era in medicine has application to the United States only, and that was when business interests realized in the 20th century how much money could be made on the demand for health services that came about through the explosion of clinical science. And when they began to realize that uh, profits could be enormous, a golden era of medicine evolved there. And that clearly began probably just before I was born and to some, in some ways you could argue continues on to this day. Can you dig into a bit into uh, how pathology is being exploited for profit? Yes. Um, so in the United States, uh, and this is true exclusively in the United States, not really true of any other country, uh, the, the concept about how to organize healthcare delivery has always been about the business interest. It's about uh, how do you actualize um, the revenue process for, and you, then you fill in the blank, for hospital services, for, for, for clinicians. Um, uh, so if you, uh, if you take it, for example, insulin, a, a medication that's absolutely needed for a diabetic, a, a diabetic um, requires insulin in order to live. This is a, a life-saving drug. Uh, it was it was invented. Uh, insulin was in the, I think the 1920s, and the inventors were some academic physicians who sold the patent for insulin for a dollar, believing that they had thereby secured uh, access to the drug at a reasonable price forever. Well, in the last uh, five years, the price of insulin has quadrupled uh, in the United States, and some some diabetics who require that drug in order to live can no longer afford it and they die. Uh, the interest of the, of the pharmaceutical industry is in making the profit, not in taking care of the patient. We in the United States would rather make a sale than actually care for the patient. And that's what I mean by, the, by saying that pathology is exploited for profit. In one very interesting chapter of your book, you talk about the similarities between prostitution and health insurance. Can you talk a bit about this for our listeners? Yes. Um, the, now, as background, I was the state health official in Nevada. Nevada is infamously the only state where prostitution is not illegal. And that's the proper term. It's not illegal. It's not, it's not that they've actually passed a law that legalizes it. It's just not illegal in certain parts of the state. Well, um, there was a, there, there was a, crisis in the brothel industry in Nevada at the time of the HIV epidemic in the 80s for the simple reason that people all over the country became quite afraid of uh, HIV in, in manifesting itself in all walks of life. The, uh, for instance, patients who might have HIV were shunned by some doctors and nurses who were just simply afraid of touching a patient who might transmit that virus to them. The brothel industry realized that they had to control that fear 
related to the sexual transmission of HIV, or they would lose business and perhaps disappear, not, not have any business at all. So they, they did what the health uh, industry does, what I call the medical industrial complex does. They, they basically found a way into the legislative and regulatory process in the state of Nevada in order to assert themselves and provide the, a cover, uh, a way of getting people to believe that it was safe to have sex in a brothel, that there was no HIV risk. Uh, they basically got regulations which don't require them to do anything uh, passed by the by the State Board of Health so that they could then turn around and publish monthly statistics that said, see, we yet again don't have any HIV positive prostitutes in the brothel system in Nevada. Uh, it's a perfectly safe thing to do. You can come and, and uh, have your business here. Uh, but that is a parallel to the the U, U.S. health insurance industry, which also likes to insert itself into the regulatory and legislative affairs of the United States. They control the process. They produce regulations that are consistently in their favor, uh, despite the fact that their business is to deny benefits. They like to try to uh, project an image of them of coverage being what people need. Uh, so the people of Nevada are willing to swallow the statistics that say everything's hunky-dory in the brothel system. And the people of the United States like to swallow the statistics that say health insurance is somehow a very useful, important, uh, great product that promotes health. Both of those things are lies. That is, the prostitution industry is unsafe. And the insurance industry actually is all about making life more difficult for patients. Um, but um, the parallel is that they both managed to su succeed at, uh, at at image making by owning the regulatory and governmental processes. I think that's a long, drawn-out answer, but um, I hope it helps. So why is changing United States healthcare such a difficult political task? The... Um, the lobby for the medical industrial complex. Now, that's a term that was not invented by me. That was invented by Arnold Relman, who used to be the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. And he meant by that the entire grouping of corporate structures that uh, promotes and sells and makes profit off of various uh, health or medical in, uh, actions, interventions, uh, diagnoses, et cetera. So that would include health insurance and hospitals and group practices and uh, big pharma, et cetera. Um, the medical and industrial complex is gigantic. The revenues for the medical industrial complex as a por portion of the gross national product of the United States, um, that's it's something like closing in on one in $5 spent in the U.S. is spent on healthcare. That's well over $3 trillion a year. They have, therefore, revenues that allow a lobbying and political donating budget that's gigantic. It's bigger, it outsizes anything else in terms of political donations. Therefore, they're able to project their interest uh, very easily to virtually every member of Congress and virtually every member of every state legislature. Very few political races are decided without at least some reference to the medical industrial complex. When it comes to debate over healthcare reform, they own the legislation. 
when the Affordable Care Act was written, it was written by a former insurance company executive who was then working for the Senate Finance Committee chairman, Max Bacchus from Montana, uh, and placed there specifically for the purpose to make sure that that bill was written in a way that would favor the health insurance industry. That's why it's so difficult to make any change that's substantive and that really makes a difference. In the book, you talked a little bit about uh, measles outbreaks. Uh, what are your thoughts on what's going on right now? Well, the, the uh, measles outbreaks that are going on right now are, are a good indication of what happens when misinformation about healthcare, in this case, vaccine, uh, is out there in the public. Uh, even people who appear to be at least in some way educated or have been taken in by the notion first published uh, in the Lancet Journal in the, in the United Kingdom that vaccines were a cause of autism. That turns out that that article was completely false. It was based on a false premise and it was known to the author to be inaccurate. It had to be retracted not too long after it was published. But nonetheless, it has become the basis of this anti-vaccine movement that has now literally hundreds of thousands of people keeping their children from having vaccine. Measles is a very infectious virus. It's easy to become exposed uh, just in um, minor passing by sort of exposure to a case. And people who are prone to measles, that is those who have not been vaccinated, um, are easily easily become diseased. And then, they, of course, they pass it on to the next uh, susceptible host. So uh, I talk about a measles outbreak that first occurred when I was a state health officer in the book uh, in a small town in, in Nevada as an illustration of how important it is to, for the healthcare system to focus on prevention and focus on getting good information to people and making sure that the right kinds of regulation uh, happens so that everyone's on the same page. But our current healthcare system is now being burdened by lots of people falling out of the, off that page. Um, we're, we're more vulnerable to measles than, than has been true for four decades in the United States right now. It's, it's true internationally. There's huge outbreaks of measles happening in Europe right now. City, do you think these philosophical uh, exemptions for vaccines should be allowed? No. I'm a public health physician, and I take a pretty hardline stance about this. Um, we need to protect every member of society from exposure to a, that virus. And the only way to do it is to take a hardline stance about uh, immunizing everyone who can be immunized. So I don't see any, any public health reason for reducing the effectiveness of those rules. What are some of the perverse incentives that are part of business as usual, American healthcare, and how does that affect patients? The perverse incentive concept comes from um, comes from the literature about economics and healthcare. Uh, we in the United States, again, uniquely in the Western world, have have come to believe wrongly that market forces are at work in healthcare delivery. Uh, and that somehow all we have to do is actuate those market forces and we will have efficiently delivered high quality care at a low cost for everybody. Um, 
And actually, that isn't the case. Market and market forces don't work in healthcare, and that that's simply the case because the prerequisites for a free market, which include um, the right buyer and the right seller and the right uh, economic environment, none of those prerequisites exist in the healthcare system. So when you pretend that something is a free market, which it isn't, then you create a situation where perverse incentives actually take place. And the perverse incentive in healthcare is you actually make more money by delivering poor quality, inefficient care. That's how you, that, that's how you make money. You, you maximize, you optimize your profits by delivering substandard care inefficiently. And an example of that, I, which I give in the book, comes from um, central Utah, a small little community hospital where a family doctor saw a number of cases of community-acquired pneumonia go, go poorly. And he became convinced that pneumonia could be and should be better treated in his community. So he studied the problem, did the research that was necessary, and came up with a protocol about how best to deliver care to people who might have pneumonia, no matter where they presented to the healthcare system, whether it was in the emergency room or whether they came to a primary care office, et cetera. And he took that protocol to all of his colleagues. And it's a small medical community because it's a small town in Utah. And they all agreed he was right, and they all said they would follow the protocol. And then he went and persuaded the hospital administrator that the hospital would do its part and make sure that the resources were made available so the protocol could be put in place. Um, they did so at the start of a year and overnight dropped the case count for pneumonia with, that caused illness great enough that had to be hospitalized. They dropped the, the uh, number of days that patients had to stay in the hospital with community-acquired pneumonia. And they dropped the cost per case of pneumonia in half. He had, a, he had identified a way to make sure that the right antibiotic was found and, and uh, given to the patient quicker than had been the case before. And so uh, it was a great success. The cost dropped, as I said, by half per case but the reimbursement fell even more than that. In other words, the hospital, because it was doing a better job of taking care of community-acquired pneumonia, suffered a financial hit from the insurers who reimbursed them far less than if they had, if the hospital had simply let these patients in the traditional way get sicker and require more days in the hospital and more often be in the in intensive care unit. Uh, Essentially, that says that that's the perverse incentive. If you want to make money, you want to make a sale in pneumonia care, let them get as sick as possible, and then your profits will be maximized. Then your bottom line is better. The perverse incentive is to deliver the mediocre care inefficiently. And that repeats itself over and over and over again throughout the American healthcare system because there are no market forces at work here. It's a pretend market economy. Why is the, the current state of American healthcare a, a bipartisan failure? Both Republicans and Democrats, when they've had their chance in the most recent history uh, to provide the public with their proposal 
and their solution for incredibly high healthcare costs, both of them have basically proposed the same thing. And that's essentially what we still have in the United States. It's known as Obamacare, but you could you could logically call it logically call it Romney care because he's he he promulgated the same basic plan in Massachusetts when he was governor uh, of Massachusetts. Of course, now he's serving in the U.S. Senate from Utah, from my state. Um, but it's the, the the concept was was put in place in a bipartisan fashion, even though. What you get in the media is that they're yelling at each other and arguing about it and bickering about it, and it's bitter, and they talk about how terrible the other party is. But they're essentially saying the same thing, and they're offering the same solution, which is not a solution. It doesn't work. It actually drives costs up, and it does nothing to improve the quality of the care, which in the United States is quite mediocre. Uh, That's why my assertion is there's not a dime's worth of difference between them. They both respond to the lobby that donates the most in terms of political races, and that's the medical industrial complex. They both are owned and operated when it comes to health policy by the status quo forces that want things to stay the same because they're making money hand over fist the way things are right now. Why can't politicians be trusted when it comes to health care policy? And I like the, the story from your book about the tobacco lobby. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell that story first and then get to the, to the question about why you can't trust a politician. Actually, the first person who told me that was the dean of the School of Medicine in uh, Nevada, Bob Doherty, who became a good friend of mine and a mentor and a supporter. I was relatively young when I became a state health official, and he was much more seasoned and spent a lot of time in political uh, con- context, going to Congress, uh, working with the state legislature in Nevada. Uh, medical schools require funding that comes from both federal and state sources. So um, he, he knew a lot of people in the arena. And his advice to me when he first started introducing me to politicians was uh, go meet them, try to find out who they are, try to find out things that are interesting to them, help them understand the issues you know better than they do, but never trust a politician. He said it over and over again. Well, one of the circumstances that occurred um, in, the, in the state of Nevada was that the, a very powerful member of the legislature, a, a man named Marvin Sudway, um, who chaired the appropriations, the Ways and Means Committee, that was what he chaired. So he was in charge of trying to come up with the budgets from the, from the state assembly point of view, was a heavy smoker. Uh, Mr. Sedway smoked two, three packs a day. And he'd already lost one lung to lung cancer, had had to have it removed. And he'd had at least one myocardial infarction or heart attack related to his smoking habit. And nonetheless, even though he only had one lung and his heart had already been affected, he still continued to smoke two to three packs of cigarettes a day. One of the stories I told about him in the book is that during a hearing of the House Ways and Means Committee or the Assembly Ways and Means Committee, he was holding a cigarette and um, he had a very full beard and the cigarette lit his beard on fire, which had to be put out by a fellow legislator who saw it first and threw a cup of coffee on him to, to keep him from getting burned by his own cigarette flame. Um, Mr. Sedway would agree with me about public health policy concerning virtually anything. For instance, the vaccine question that we just discussed, 
he was on the, he came down on the side of public health, quite a controversial issue. He was consistently with me, except when it came to public health policy related to tobacco control. And whenever that was an issue, he was always on the side of tobacco, always. He was inconsistent and unable to, to see the error that he was making, even though it was affecting his own personal health. And that's one of the reasons why it's difficult for me to invest a whole lot of trust in a group of people who happen to have been elected and they have important positions and they make decisions that affect all of us, but they're inconsistent people like, like we all are. Uh, and they, they take their flaws with them when they go serve in office. I think that's the story you're referring to. Um, when you asked, when you asked about it, um, he, he, he's long since passed away. He died of a second lung cancer, uh, caused of course, by his continuing to smoke in the, in the one lung he had left. And of course you can't remove the second lung. So he passed away many, many years ago, not long after I left the state of Nevada. Politicians are not to be trusted for another reason. Um, and that can be illustrated by what President Obama said when he was first trying to get people to support the Affordable Care Act. He would go, and go around saying, if you like your health plan, you can keep your health plan. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Now, his people had done polling and they knew those were important things to say. Knew, they knew that the majority of Americans wanted to keep their health plan and wanted to keep their doctor. So he would say what they wanted to hear. But he also knew that that flat wasn't the case with what he was proposing in the Affordable Care Act. It simply hasn't worked out that way because it was never intended to work out that way. I'm not saying that President Obama is a particularly egregious example of political dishonesty. He's just a very typical example of it. When people run for office, they make sure they understand what people want to hear, what their electorate wants to hear, and they tell them that. Whether they mean that or not is entirely a separate question. And most often in healthcare, they don't mean what they're saying. That's why you can't trust them when it comes to health policy. They're flat out doing what they have to do to get the donations from the medical industrial complex, no matter what that does to the electorate and to the patient. Can you talk a little bit more about the focus on profit in the medical industrial complex and how it's not in the best interest of patients and how it affects outcomes, such as when it comes to high-priced cancer drugs or drugs like insulin that shoot up 5,000% or whatever overnight? So the pharmaceutical industry is a really good example of this, uh, of the pursuit of profit interrupting what's really important for patients. Uh, I'll give you an example. We have a growing international problem related to antibiotics that don't work anymore because of resistance in bacteria that has become a natural response to the use of antibiotics over many decades now. Uh, Antibiotic-resistant bacteria are increasingly prevalent, and more and more antibiotics are no longer useful. We have a dire need for new antibiotics that can keep us ahead of this evolving uh, bacterial resistance to antibiotics. Unfortunately, there's no new antibiotic in the pipeline. And that is because antibiotics, when, when 
very successful when they're a good antibiotic can never be a blockbuster drug. By that, I mean they can never be a drug that makes a gigantic profit in blockbuster fashion for a pharmaceutical company. And that's because an antibiotic, when taken usually appropriately, is like a two-week course, and the bacteria is then uh, defeated, and the disease is over, and the course of antibiotics stops. A blockbuster drug, generally speaking, is one uh, that is taken for the rest of the patient's life. And therefore, day in and day out for many, many years, the sale is continually made. Those are the kind of drugs that uh, pharmaceutical companies are looking for. And they have stopped off antibiotic research because they're not going to get a blockbuster out of it, even though that's what we really need. Those are the kind of drugs that should be at the top of everyone's list. And if we were doing things according to what would be important for patients, they certainly would be rising to the list and we'd have new, new antibiotics in the pipeline. But the profit interests are what drive the decision-making, the policy-making uh, in the pharmaceutical industry and in, and in all other parts of the medical industrial complex, even though that's not in the best interest of the patient. In fact, what I would say is the profit motive is in direct conflict with the care of the patient. You can have optimum profits or you can have optimum quality patient care, but you can't have both. So why do you call both red and blue health policy proposals one and the same? Because they are the same. Romney Care and Obamacare are the same policy. Trump Care, if there is such a thing, is just a meaner version of Obamacare. It's not any different. They're both, they're all of them based on the health insurance business model, and they're propping up that really lousy, terrible business model with lots of government money. Uh, that's what they do. And they're trying to enforce the use of that business model by every patient. They're the same. There isn't any real difference. If you had a crystal ball and you were to look 10 years into the future, um, where would American healthcare be for both the better and the worse? Well, the worst, uh, the worst apocalyptic sort of 10 year prediction is that the status quo uh, continues to prevail. We continue to do business as usual in American healthcare. The costs rise, uh, and the nation is increasingly bankrupted by the costs related to care. In fact, what is driving the federal deficit is healthcare. Healthcare costs are the only part of the federal deficit that are outsizing future revenues. If we do nothing for the next 10 years, there'll be a $50 trillion bill to pay in healthcare expenses over that 10-year time frame. Um, that's the worst possible outcome. We'll become weaker as a nation. We won't, the opportunity costs of spending that $50 trillion on healthcare will keep us being, from increasing or improving the education of our young people. Uh, our infrastructure will continue to decay. Because you, you can't spend a dollar, you know, twice. You can only be spent once. And the gross domestic product, as it comes in, becomes more increasingly, a higher percentage of it is devoted to healthcare. That means a lower percentage is devoted to other things. Um, those are the opportunity costs. Now, if I were to give a, an optimistic, hopeful 
prediction for 10 years from now, we will have figured out how uh, to legislatively make it possible for at least a state, if not the entire nation, to try out a single-payer approach to health care financing. And it will succeed because it has succeeded everywhere else in the world, and it, there's no reason to believe that we Americans can't do it as well as anyone else, and that care will improve in quality and therefore decrease in price. The efficiency of financing will increase and therefore there will be a decrease in the cost. Everybody will be included in it and we will have, we'll stop having to pay that opportunity cost. And instead of having a growing federal debt, we'll have a shrinking one and we'll have a, a healthier population. Those are the two alternatives. I, th- I mean, people, the, the American patient, especially middle class and lower middle class can't not only survive under, but tolerate the increasing deductibles, premiums, and out-of-pocket expenses, right? That's right. Uh, it's not just a government, the government that is suffering financially from the status quo. Um, data that's been published just in the last week or two, re-looked at the, the family and personal bankruptcy problem in the United States and rediscovered that even after Obamacare has been fully implemented, Two-thirds of those declaring bankruptcy in the United States are declaring bankruptcy because of illness and injury costs. And most of those people, when they, when they incurred those medical costs, were insured. Health insurance is not providing financial security for families. Even health insurance that's come, that they get at the workplace, even employment-based health benefits, do not provide that financial security. Well, even in employment-based... Uh... Uh, insurance, it's it's in, the amount that people spend on it every year is just increasing dramatically. Yes. Well, uh, well, of course, their wages are stagnant and they're stagnant because of it. That's another opportunity cost of the health benefit of keeping the health benefit in the hands of the of the very expensive, very wasteful health insurance industry. The, the opportunity cost is you can't raise wages because the cost of the care is rising of, of the insurance, I shouldn't say the care, but the insurance is rising so dramatically. People, uh, the individual, the, the employee is finding that year after year, they're, what they are forced to pay before the insurance actually even kicks in through the deductible and the premium is rising much more rapidly than their wages are rising. So my question for you is, what what does your solution to this the the situation we're in right now look like you talked about moving to a single payer system, but what does single payer look like to you? Is it Medicare for all or, or what is it like and how do we get there? There are two, two ways of doing single payer reform. One is the Medicare for all or national single payer. Single payer is just a term that means there's one payer, one source of payment for health services in any given region. Uh, so Medicare is a source of payment for uh, health services for the nation. And the proposals that are coming from Bernie Sanders and others in Congress for Medicare for all are basically saying, we're going to take Medicare, which is now for people over 65, and make it a, a, a health service payment for all American citizens, regardless of age. That would be a national single payer. That's one option. The other option is the one that I prefer which is a state-paced single-payer. That is, the region for each single-payer would be a state, or it could be a group of states that have agreed to get together and share 
one payer for their whole region. Uh, and so either, either one of those can invoke the very great efficiencies that are possible uh, when you drop the overhead, uh, drop out of the, the business model of health insurance, which has such a very high overhead. When they accept a dollar, that is the health insurance industry accepts a dollar for premiums, um, about no more than 75% of that dollar actually gets paid out for health services. The other 25% is overhead. It's used um, to try to figure out how to deny payment when claims are made. It's used to try to figure out how to uh, advertise so that you get only healthy people to be your beneficiaries. And it's used to pay gigantic salaries and uh, profits to uh, the executives and to the, the shareholders in the for-profit businesses. Uh, it's a very high overhead. Medicare runs, instead of a 25% overhead, Medicare runs at a 3% overhead. State-based single payers could be even more efficient than that. Medicaid, which is managed at state levels and shared with the federal government, is usually a 2% overhead. So my uh, single payer could be either national or it could be state. I prefer state because I believe there are good functional reasons for having management at the state level. And I believe there are good political reasons for having the, uh, the transition occur at the state level. How, I mean, the, the, the major health insurance companies aren't going to, I mean, I mean can, they're not going to effectively, for lack of a better word, allow this to happen though, right? This move towards single payer with their lobbying power and, and things like that, they're not going to allow that to happen. They're going to say things like, "Oh, you're you're getting rid of too many jobs," or 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 how what's going to be done to combat the the forces of the insurance industry? Well, you're absolutely right. They're not going to allow it to happen, and they've done everything possible that they can, and they will continue to do everything they can to oppose it and make sure that it doesn't happen. They've formed an industry group. Um, once Medicare for all argued by Bernie Sanders and others, became popular, and it, it is increasingly popular. They have gotten together as an industry and started funding opposition uh, advertising, and uh, you'll, see, you'll see regularly op-ed pieces appearing through surrogates who are basically, you know, they're telling prevarications and other kinds of various forms of lies about what single-payer would mean, um, misrepresenting. Uh, what really would be the case under a single payer system? Yeah, they're they're doing they're working their side of the street as effectively as they always have. But the truth about um, the medical industrial complex, including the insurance industry, is that they oppose anything, even if it's a small, very small incremental step that might appear to take away their option for maximizing their profit. Uh, so um, one of the arguments I make to people uh, around the country is. We can't, we can't be doing things that are just easy to do or what, look, what looks like it's low-hanging fruit in health policy. Uh, things that really matter and are sustainable will be opposed by these very forces with everything that they can throw at it uh, if, if it interferes with their ability to make as much money as they want to make. We have to accept the fact that it's whatever we do that's for the better for patient care um, is going to cost us a lot politically. We just have to, since we're going to have to pay that price anyway, let's start paying it 
by getting the most sustainable, the most reasonable policy in place, and that would be single payer. So first of all, you have to galvanize those who are open to the idea, uh, and we haven't succeeded at that yet. There's a division out there between single payer supporters, some of whom are, or the majority of whom are Medicare for all supporters, and then some of whom, like myself, are state-based supporters, state-based single payer reform supporters. We're not looked on favorably by the Medicare for all people. We have to heal that wound and just agree that whichever kind of single pair you're working on, you're still working for the cause and let's support each other and let's move ahead and let's see which one ends up being the best, most viable pathway forward. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a political fight. The policy's been written. The, the data is available. There's no need for more research. It's all political fighting at this point, and we have to then educate the American electorate um, what they're hearing about single payer from the from the forces that oppose it is wrong, and here's why it's wrong. Um, yes, there are things to be afraid of in American healthcare, but it has nothing to do with transforming our system to single payer. What what we need to be afraid of is the fact that the status quo is incredibly unsafe for hospitalized patients. We have 400,000 deaths per year that are caused by preventable injury of hospitalized patients. I mean, 400,000 deaths. That's, that's on the order of magnitude of how many people die from cardiovascular disease or from cancer. That's how many people are dying from a system that is focused too much on business aspects and profit and not enough on what really is right for the patient. People are dying. They're being injured and dying from that. That's what they should be afraid of. That's what we have to help people see and rally them to a system that's actually going to look out for them instead of a system that's looking out for the profits. Not to put my negativity hat on, but do you think this hurdle of, of opposing the uh, health insurance companies, do you think that can be realistically overcome? Well, that's the... That's the uh, Thing that's been thrown at me for 25 years now. And of course, for 25 years, the negativity hat has been the right one to wear. <laughs> I, I wrote the book because everything else that I've tried to do has failed. Uh, and I, I'm joined in that by the tens of thousands of people that are like-minded with me. Um, the one thing that I would say is the trend over time is towards single payer. It's absolutely true that it's a far more interesting and popular concept today than was true even five years ago. It's growing in popularity because increasing numbers of Americans are realizing they can't ignore this issue anymore. It's easy for a family that has a health insurance benefit from work and they're, all, they're young and they're active and they're healthy to say, oh, I've got that covered. I don't need to worry about that. Everything's fine. They only realize the problems with the health insurance business model once they actually have to use the insurance and it fails them. As it did in the as it did in the case of all those people who declared personal bankruptcy in the past year, who were part of the study that I previously cited, where healthcare costs, despite insurance, were driving people into bankruptcy. Well, more and more people are becoming aware of that. Um, so, do I think it's possible to overcome that negativity? Yes. Ultimately, if you want to really look at it in a negative way, if we don't do anything. We'll spend that $50 trillion over the next 10 years, and our co country will begin to crumble because you cannot do what's impossible. 
you cannot maintain the world's best economy with a, an, a, a federal debt that is rising into the 50, 60, 70 trillion dollar range. That's not possible. You can't, there's, there's no partying on past that kind of federal debt. If I, if I had to ask you to look back into your crystal ball, when will this move to single payer happen? When do you think? Um, I think it's highly likely to, for the first time, come to a congressional hearing in the next two years. And uh, the hearing won't be enough to get it through, of course, but, it, but that's a first step. And in the, in the, uh, after the 2020 presidential election, when again, single payer will be out there uh, discussed, um, becoming more part of the national consciousness uh, in, the, in the two years congressional term that follows the 2020 presidential election, uh, I think single payer, either state-based enabling legislation or me- Medicare for all legislation, will come to a vote for the first time in Congress. Uh, with the potential of passage maybe in the second half of that next presidential term, and certainly by the early part of the of the presidential term after the 2024 election. So what advice would you give to patients and providers both who are frustrated and struggling with the current state of American healthcare? Well, um, my, my first advice is to get educated about why you're having these frustrations. What exactly is the problem in the American healthcare delivery system. Become aware of the failures of business as usual in American healthcare. Markets don't work in healthcare delivery. Let's all agree that we can't allow our politicians to stand in front of us and say, I'm just going to go back there and enact uh, market-based legislation. That doesn't work. We've got we've to reject that resoundingly. Uh, so providers and patients Let's kind of get on the same page about we have a real problem in our healthcare system, and that problem is that we keep relying on something that is a fiction, market-based health system reform. All right, that's a step. That's first step. And then you begin looking for for uh, people to vote for at both the state and the federal level who are actually going to take seriously the the alternatives to business as usual. Um, you, they have to be open to the idea that. Uh, the medical industrial complex doesn't have the answers. In fact, they are the problem. Uh, that's what I'd advise people to do. Let's get on the same page together. Let's, it's our votes that we don't have the dollars. To, we can't spend as much as they as the opposition can spend, but we do have the votes. Let's let's get these votes together and let's find people to vote for who, who are going to help us. Well, Joe, I, I've taken up a lot of your time today. My final question for you is what are you working on now? I'm working on uh, some of the national organizations that are related to single payer, like the Physicians for a National Health Program, um, where the dis- this division that I spoke of between the state-based and the Medicare for All um, activists has occurred. I'm trying to heal that wound. Uh, I'm trying to, to cross over. Uh, I'm doing some public speaking. I'm, I'm arranging to go meet with people. I'm trying to organize a a national focus for those who want to see uh, what's going on at the state level and how we can get federal enabling legislation passed. That's how, that's, that's the work that I've got right now. Now, I think that that may end up generating uh, interest in perhaps another book, but that's down the road a ways. I 
haven't begun to plot that out. Uh, instead, what I think is needed is somebody and a lot of people out there talking, providing information and education, and bringing people together rather than having people kind of split up and, and not working in a concerted fashion. Well, Joe, I, I'd love to have you back on the show in the future uh, if you do make another book and or do write another book. And uh, thank you very, very much for your time today. This was an excellent conversation, and I'm sure it's one our listeners will enjoy. Thanks for having me. It was great.